All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to thank our sponsors uh, for the second hour of today's show, uh, for making this uh, show economically viable. Um, I'm really pleased to have with me today David Gantz. Uh, he is a managing partner and uh, principal litigator in the law firm of Gantz, Hollinger, and Tao in New York City, and Gantz and Sivan, uh, PA of Fairlawn, New Jersey. He is, uh, has been an award-winning writer uh, in the numismatic field for more than 30 years. His knowledge about coins and the law is widely sought after both as a consultant, a writer, and a lawyer, having been asked to testify before the Subcommittee on Consumer Affairs and other subcommittees of the House Banking Committee on more than a dozen occasions since 1974, and most recently testified in 1995. He has served as a columnist for Coin World from 1976 through 1996, um, backgrounder and law collectibles is uh, the... Um, subject area, and uh, for Numismatic News Weekly from 1969 to present, um, he has written Coin Market Insider Report each month uh, for Coin uh, Coinage Magazine since 1974, and his column Law and Coins began on Numis Media in March 1999, and he is a recipient of the Numismatic Literary Guild's highest honor, uh, the Clement F. Bailey Award in, uh, in 1996. Welcome, uh, David. It's turning hard times into good times. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Well, I'm really happy to have you. And I, it just struck me as I read over your bio the, uh, you know, how much you were involved in uh, in coins and and I guess indirectly in gold and so forth. But uh, and um, and I'm wondering why we didn't have you on before since this this show has so much to do with uh, uh, with with that topic. Uh, you also were telling me before we uh, before we came on the air that you uh, are also involved in local politics. Could you tell our, our listeners a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, for a number of years, I was on the local zoning board. Then I ran for the town council in the borough of Fairlawn. And uh, about ten years ago, I ran for and was elected to the county freeholder job and was just reelected to a fourth term in November. And what does a freeholder do? Um, you know, everybody that I tell I'm a freeholder says the same thing. <laughs> uh, what a freeholder is is like a county commissioner, a presiding supervisor. There are seven of us in Bergen County, and um, we are the county government and the county legislature. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's you know really important, and I think if there's anything that you know people can do is probably uh, to affect the world they live in is to uh, get involved locally rather than uh, not that they shouldn't get involved at higher levels, but you know we we uh, hear so much about presidential politics and people go to the polls and vote for presidential elections, but they don't uh, seem to care much about what's going on locally, and it seems to me that's where people ought to ought to be focused more so. Even would you agree? I would. Uh... I find that local politics is extremely rewarding. A fellow that uh, I know fairly well who ran against me uh, unsuccessfully for the town council, unsuccessfully for freeholder, successfully, which is to say that he beat me for town council, uh, and now is the county administrator. We're good friends, even though we're political adversaries. But he said that there's no Democratic or Republican way to pick up garbage, and basically he's right. Yeah. On a local level... Uh, you find that um, there's none of the deadlock or the gridlock that goes on in Washington. We vote um, on 200 items or so every week or every other week. And uh, basically, we are Democrats and Republicans alike, and it's a Republican majority now. Uh, We tend to vote with each other on 97 or 98 out of 100 items. Yeah, it's, it gets down to the practical, doesn't it, at the, at the local level? And you, you've got to make it, you've got to make things work in, uh, in in the lives of the people that you represent. So you're exactly right. It's very important. Well, I'd really like to, uh, you know, maybe go back and look a little bit about the the potential for confiscation of, of gold coins and and other coins, perhaps uh, silver coins too. Perhaps I don't know. I want to get to that topic. But I would like to go back a little bit and ask you about the history of gold confiscation because certainly there is a precedent for gold being confiscated. We live in a country where private property is supposed to be respected, but in, uh, during the Roosevelt administration, of course, uh, the, uh, there was a seizure of gold uh, from the American people, as I understand it, under penalty of $10,000 fine and 10 years in imprisonment. Is that correct? That's correct. And and uh, how did that come about? I mean, this is it's action one might expect from a communist dictatorship, but how could it happen in America? Under what constitutional pretext could that have uh, have occurred? Well, before we talk about confiscation of gold back in the uh, uh, Depression era, let's do something very current that I'll tell you something about presidential politics that you probably don't know. It's okay. About Ron Paul, uh, who has uh, been a congressman on and off for more than 30 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the interregnum between um, terms, he was a in partnership with a coin dealer in California mm-hmm. selling gold and silver coins to millions of people, well, hundreds of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether you knew that. I'm, I'm sorry, would you, would you say that again? Ron Paul was in partnership with a coin dealer in Burlingame, California, uh-huh. selling gold, silver, Coins and bullion uh-huh. to thousands of Americans. Okay, yes. And I don't think that that's something that's particularly well known. Well, I think I was... A candidate who is not only an advocate of gold, but actually was selling it. Yeah, I, I think that's... Uh, I think I was aware of it. I knew that he was involved with the coins, but you might be... I'm sure you're right when you say that most Americans aren't aware of that. Um, well, so what let's, do you make let's, of that? Let's jump back now to... Okay. Franklin D. Roosevelt and the okay, dark please, years yes. of 1933 and 1934. Um, everything that was done, the seizure of gold, uh, ultimately passed Supreme Court muster. Mm-hmm. That doesn't say that they were right. 
Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court has certainly been wrong on many occasions. Uh, you look at Plessy against Ferguson, in 1896, went one way, the Warren Court and Brown against Board in 1954 went another. But uh, what they said essentially was that the government had the right to uh, not commit financial suicide, and to uh, and their theory was that what they did was nothing more than transfer one sort of ownership, which is to say $20 worth of gold, for $20 worth of paper. Mm-hmm. And that was that was their theory. Yep. And the Supreme and they, Court, they, they uh, at least under the dollars, law... Millions uh, of dollars worth of rare coins. I'm sorry, I didn't get that part. They melted millions of dollars worth of rare coins. Uh-huh. Um, they were called in, the people turned them in, and they were melted. We've got a fairly good idea as to what the denominations were, though not the dates. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so w- what would you say the majority of Americans complied with that law and voluntarily turned in their gold? Absolutely. Uh, because I've heard some people say otherwise, but you would you would certainly know more about that. Well, than... when you look at the fact that hundreds of millions of coins were melted, mm-hmm. you come away with the impression that the majority of people were law-abiding. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, there are certainly examples that we know of people who weren't. It was illegal, in addition to holding gold, you couldn't hold gold certificates, which were the paper currency mm-hmm. that were labeled gold certificates, made in higher denominations mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, that was actually not legal to own until 1964, yet, mm-hmm. and it had to be turned in. Yet there are many of them that are available to collectors today, which means that during that 30-some-odd-year period, people um, put them away. And when it was all over, they brought them back. Yeah, and, but they couldn't do that until 64. That's correct. And then in 64, were they able to get their gold back? No, they were able to currency? legally hold the gold certificates. It, in fact, so, in it was, they, so it was turned back they, into just paper. In 64, as I'm sure you remember, uh, people couldn't own gold except as rare and unusual coin. That was the one exception that was made um, when Roosevelt signed the order to pull the gold in, the executive order. Uh, 6201. So, okay, so people could own, and and what were some of those coins that they were allowed to own? Well, uh, actually, the easiest way to describe it is what they were not allowed to own. Mm-hmm. Anything that was made after 1933 was presumably not rare or unusual. Mm-hmm. Anything before was. Mm-hmm. And you could hold it in a surprisingly large quantity. You were allowed to hold up to four different um, coins that were identical. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you wanted a $20 gold piece from 1907, you could have four of them. If you mm-hmm. wanted a 1927D $20 gold piece, which is a very scarce coin, you could have up to four of them. Mm-hmm. And by the time this was all done, if, if you had a complete collection, it was worth a lot of money. Sure. There weren't very many people, of course, who could do that. Right. Well, certainly but would be a lot of money today. there were people who believed we're... in gold who did, uh, who frankly were not coin collectors, but realized that they could own gold that way, and they became coin collectors. Mm-hmm. And the uh, government didn't put you to a test. Um, if you said you were collecting rare and unusual coins, they believed you, and um, they allowed you to collect it. 
And they kept revising that list as to what was permissible and what wasn't until basically about 1961, the Office of Domestic Gold and Silver Operations said anything prior to 1960 is rare and unusual. Modern gold coins are not. Prior to 1961? Yeah. Okay. So, okay, so people were allowed to own them uh, up until then. Well, uh, so d- were there a lot of people that were, uh, that were imprisoned and fined under this law? Um, I'm, I'm certain that there were some individuals who did go to prison because when you read the cases uh, that are reported on it, they're in a criminal context, and the, um, it's clear that there were prosecutions. Were there fines? Uh, undoubtedly. But yeah, mostly because, there were seizures. Uh, I remember in speaking to uh, Henry Royce, who was involved uh, in the legislation to make owning gold legal again during the Ford administration, uh, I remember talking to him in New York one time, and he said, yeah, it just didn't quite seem right to him anymore that uh, the penalties for uh, owning gold were greater than uh, for owning um, cocaine, yes. crack cocaine. So what, what turned it around then, and why, uh, why was it then made legal under Gerald Ford? Well, uh, it's actually it's a very interesting story, and it relates to people like Mr. Royce, who I knew uh, and talked to avidly in that period, because I was working then for Numismatic News, mm-hmm. which was located in Iola, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Mr. Royce, of course, came from Milwaukee, but had run statewide for attorney general before he had gone to Congress. And when I told him that I was from Iola, which is a tiny little town of 900 people, he knew people in that town and in the adjacent town of Scandinavia, population like 50 at that time, and um, a real populist, but also a traditional um, Midwestern Democratic liberal. Mm-hmm. And so Mr. Royce found himself by 1974 as chairman of the House Banking Committee. Mm-hmm. Wright Patman had been the chairman, and when Watergate took place, it was first referred to the House Banking Committee, and Patman couldn't handle it. There was a revolt. Patman was um, ousted. Royce came in, and um, Lenore Sullivan, who chaired the coinage subcommittee, also was ousted. It was a lot of bloodletting. But what finally happened is that they, the, there was a group of liberal members of Congress and a group of very conservative members of Congress who combined the liberals wanted a foreign aid bill passed. The conservatives wanted um, gold ownership to be legalized, and they combined the two together. And some of the members, like people like Phil Crane, told me that in all his years in Congress, that was the only foreign aid bill that he ever voted for. Hmm. And as a result, on December 31st, 1974, gold ownership became legal again. And... Um, what is fascinating to me is that if you look at the history of the price of gold from, say, 1970 forward, um, it's sort of gone up, it's gone down, it's gone sideways. And even on one occasion, January 16, 1970, it went below the official price of $35 an ounce. Just is that moment. right? January, January 19... 16, 1970. Uh-huh. Was that... Uh... Was there some intervention in the markets then, possibly, to make that happen? The, the gold, the London gold pool, or something? You know, it's so hard to tell. 
you can look at it in retrospect and you can guess a lot, um, but they weren't disclosing that kind of stuff at the time. Yeah. And um, it's it's clear that they that somebody wanted to push the price down and let people know that this wasn't the greatest thing since sliced bread. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, if you look at a timeline since then, it very clearly um, shows a progressive line going up. And the, in the price. Absolutely. Yeah, well, that's that's true, uh, although some people are of the mind to say that it's not necessarily that the gold price is going up so much as the currency is being debased. No, it's certainly a way to look at it, because when FDR um, was getting ready to do his recall, what they did, uh, of course, is they um, changed the rate that the United States would pay for gold. It went from $20.67 an ounce to $35 which was an effective devaluation of 59%. Yeah, and of course he did that after he uh, after people turned in their gold, right? Well, of, well, of course that was the whole purpose. They yeah. allowed the government to take the profit, not the not the individuals. Yeah. Yeah. All right, which leads the leads us to the the obvious question then with gold on a rise now from uh, in, in a long bear market from about 1980 after it had hit a peak of $850 gold fell um you know, as low as 200 250 or yep. so dollars uh, before it started rising in 2003. Now it's up, uh, it's been up $1,700, $1,800. Uh, you know, gold has gained, at least in terms of, uh, as measured in, in, in dollars, which I think is sort of a worthless measure in a way, although we're all forced to, to measure everything we do in dollars because that's what we pay for everything. But the dollar can be created infinitely by Mr. Bernanke, and it seems as though that is uh, so. It's, that is what he plans to do to try to keep things from from deflating, much as I think was going on a lot of the same policies that went on during the 30s. So here we are again, though. This time, of course, gold I think is not in the minds of of most Americans uh, as it was in the 1930s, because after all, gold was interchangeable. Gold and silver were interchangeable. They were money back in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, you, do you agree with that? Do you believe that Americans now are basically oblivious? I mean, there are those of us who are gold bugs, and I consider myself to be one. But there are. But, but would you, do you? I mean, I've made the statement several times that if I ever walked down the streets of New York, I wouldn't find one in a hundred people that think owning gold is really a great idea, or, or where they'd want to put any amount of their investment money. Would you agree with that? I don't think that's true so much today. Mm-hmm. It certainly would have been true five years ago. Um, but I'm I'm 60 years old. Mm-hmm. I have grown children. I have a son who's fighting in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. uh, and a daughter that's in graduate school, and another daughter who lives in Florida working as a paralegal. Mm-hmm. And I th- I think other than the fact that they know that their dad collects coins, they're not really attuned to gold and silver, and it doesn't mean anything to them. Right. They just they want to know that their paycheck comes in. I want to know that they can buy what they want to buy, and they're not focused on the fact that uh, for many years gold was a necessary hedge against inflation mm-hmm. and a way to preserve capital and to make sure that you had assets when other people didn't. Mm-hmm. Well, don't you think that's sort of the, the mood of most people, that are at least younger people? Um, I think younger people, absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a group of us who are post-war baby boomers mm-hmm. who know the difference. Mm-hmm. And well, I, I have to say that I just published a book on investing in 
gold, silver, platinum, and palladium that uh, Krause Publications uh, is put out. It came out December 28th. Uh, and we have 20,000 copies in print right now. Hmm. Where can people, uh, while we were on that topic, where can people, uh, how can they avail themselves to that? Amazon.com, great place. And then just the, so the name of the book, just so they All you sure have to do have is right. type in Gans Gold, you'll find it. Investing in Gold, Silver, and Palladium. Well, the actual title is The Essential Guide to Investing in Precious Metals. Okay. All right, good. Well, I, I have to pick up a copy of that, and maybe we can talk to you about that sometime as well. Uh, it is a topic that we, we talk about frequently, more from the mining perspective than from the metals perspective, uh, owning the metals themselves. But So uh, maybe we can have you back sometime to talk about that. I'd but, be happy to do that. Well, well uh, just to, to get an idea then, um, here we are with gold gaining. Actually, gold is not going it, – it's not just a matter of gold uh, rising relative to a, to a, an increasingly worthless paper monetary unit, but it's also rising. I like to look at it in terms of gold relative to other commodities, and I measure it in terms of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. And if we go back to before the Lehman Brothers collapse, uh, an ounce of gold would have purchased only 17% of the Rogers Fund, which has energy, base metals, clothing items, food items in it, and it, uh, it it rose to 44% by March of 2009 after the Lehman Brothers decline, which told me that the world, many people, sophisticated investors or central bankers or whoever, were suggesting that we need to go back to gold as a monetary unit, and um, it came back a bit to 30%, but then with the latest European crisis, it rose up to 47.5%. It's back a bit. Now, the point is that gold has risen in real terms, and what an ounce of gold will buy, if you will, although it's not legal tender, but what an ounce of gold will buy, uh, has risen very dramatically, which then leads to my concern and the concern of many of us that own gold, is what are the prospects of gold being confiscated once again, since it's a, a precedent that's already been set, which seem to be well, a very worse, easy thing for our government the fact to do. That the precedent has been set is the fact that when FDR acted in 1934, he was using the Trading with the Enemies Act of 1917. Uh-huh. He was using something that came from World War One. Mm-hmm. It's still in the books. They still have the ability to do that if that's what they choose to do. Yeah. So so he used a Trading with the Enemies Act to justify it. Yes. And uh, to help us understand the logic of that, could you? Well, the Trading with the Enemies Act, uh, which is still in the books, is what prevents us today from uh, trading with North Korea, with Cuba, and a number of other nations that are not favored by the United States. I see. If they're declared enemies, then yes. we can't trade with them. And That's correct. And it also is what's used to seize the assets of the enemy in the country, and it's not too far from that to see um, a change that allows for confiscation. You know, what's, what's kind of interesting to me is I'm, I'm looking at the Treasury Department's website, which shows the total Treasury-owned gold, mm-hmm. and um, there's 261 million ounces, more or less, 200, well, 261, 498, 899.316, and the value of it is 11 billion 
41 million dollars and again some change um and that number hasn't changed in years now if you do the division you'll see that the government is valuing this at $42.22 an ounce mm-hmm. not at the free market price mhm yeah so obviously the government uh, if if indeed it still owns the gold uh, and I want to ask you about that as well, but we only have a couple of minutes, unfortunately. We may may have you back on the other side of the break if you can spare that time. Sure. Forty-two dollars and twenty-two cents. Um, if uh, I mean, obviously, it's it's a uh, it's a value that doesn't make any sense given the market values of today. Why do they do that? I suspect that they do it for two reasons. The first is an accounting reason that it's easier to not have to change the value on a regular basis and simply cite to the law that says 4222 is, is what we value it at. Mm-hmm. And I think the second reason is that um, it makes it something that you have to calculate in order to figure out what the difference is and how much in assets the government truly has in gold. Yeah. That's, uh, well, obviously, uh, that amount of gold would be um, you know, it would be a huge asset on the, on the books of the U.S. if, if indeed it owns it. Um, I'm trying to see here if we've got our next guest. No. Um, so, so what what do you think? We haven't had a we haven't had an audit of the uh, U.S. gold uh, supply since Eisenhower. Why do you think that is? Um, well, I'll, I think I can answer that question. Audit mm-hmm. is a very expensive. Um, proposition to undergo. I had a client that had 56,000 ounces of gold stored in New York in the COMEX vaults, and they wanted to know that the gold wasn't being leased to somebody or worse, stolen, and -hmm. they asked me to audit it. And um, I concluded that the cost to do a one-by-one audit would probably amount to... um, a mid-six-figure sum, which I didn't think was an acceptable cost. Mm-hmm. Fine by me, of course. I would have gotten the fee for it, but it didn't seem fair. Yeah. And what I suggested that we do as an alternative <coughs> is that we pick at random 30 bar numbers and walk in and um, tell the, the um, depository we would like them to produce these items now. Mm-hmm. And the, the client accepted that because statistically it was within 5%. If they missed on one or two of these items, it could be a problem. Yeah. If they made them all, but yeah, I guess here's the point. I'm sure you might be willing to accept that for uh, my client, but I'm not so sure you'd accept it for the United States. You'd want to see $261 million Troy ounces of gold, yeah, right down to the point three one six. Yeah, but you know, even though the gold has not been audited since 1954, um, the gold has been viewed since then. In 19- yeah. September of 1974, when the Congressional Inspection Tour took place at Fort Knox, I was mm-hmm. there for that tour, and uh, I guess I'm one of the last people standing from it, and um, the gold was there, as promised. 
All right, good. We're, we're going to have to take a commercial break now. I want to, if you can come back uh, to talk to us for a few minutes sure. on the other side of the break, I'd appreciate it. Sure. Can you do that? Okay, great. Okay, folks, we're going to be right back. Uh, we're going to be right back uh, with Mr. Gans in just a minute, uh, two or three minutes after the break. Don't go away. We'll be right back to talk more about gold and is it there? That's a question we want to ask. And how can we protect ourselves against the potential confiscation once again? Don't go away. We'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American bonanza.com for more exciting information don't miss this great opportunity American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at w www.rypatchgold.com Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Uh, we're back with David Gantz, who stayed on this side of the of the break. Uh, a couple of things we want to talk to him about. I'm really happy also to have with me, again, Jeff Dice, Ron Paul's chief of staff, is with us today. Uh, and uh, want to ask, uh, get Jeff's opinion on a couple of these issues, too, uh, pertaining to gold. Uh, David, we were just saying, you know, you were saying it was going to be very costly to audit the uh, the gold supply. But, you know, and I could see where it would be costly if you're talking about six figures to do an audit uh, on the part of an individual or an individual transaction, although some of these big banks, God knows, six figures is nothing. Uh, but uh, but where, do, do you really believe that we really, do we really own the gold? I mean, yes, the gold is there, but we know there's something called swaps, you know. Countries yep. swap gold. Uh, they, they transfer it from one, one to the next. And another question I'd like to ask, you know, I've never heard anything recently about uh, Fort Knox. Is there still a Fort Knox? It's never, ever mentioned any longer. Um, I can only tell you that I've been there. Mm-hmm. I was on the congressional inspection trip in 1974. Uh-huh. It was a very exciting place to be, uh, and it was amazing to see that quantity of gold. Yeah. It's a long time ago, 1974, though. Yes, it was. So we never, I mean, in those days, we heard Fort Knox mentioned from time to time. We never hear it mentioned any longer. And then on the issue of cost, um, uh, Jeff Deist, uh, you know, as working with Congressman Paul, um, Congressman Paul doesn't like to spend money, doesn't like to spend taxpayers' money. Would he be appalled by spending taxpayers' money to audit the gold supply? Well, I think in the, in the, relatively speaking, compared to what Congress spends on other things, it would be a relatively small amount of money. Um, and, you know, uh, it's the kind of thing where the benefits to the public would probably outweigh the expenditure, Jay. Um, you, you know, there's just so little transparency, really, in our monetary system and obviously with our Fed, uh, and that spills over with, into our Treasury as well. So uh, it seems like a no-brainer um, unless you don't want transparency. Yeah. And I think that that's the case that we have with our current Fed. Well, David, uh, I don't know if you if you have a number in mind, but if we were to look at you know the, the monetary system, the the number, the units of measure, the units of dollar measure have grown, mm-hmm. well, especially since Lehman Brothers have grown exponentially. Um, what would that mean in terms of a gold price if if we had the same sort of ratio that we had back when Roosevelt well, confiscated? I, I think that there are experts in the field who are talking about gold at twenty five hundred dollars an ounce, or possibly mm-hmm. a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think if you had told somebody a number of years ago that gold was going to be $1,600 an ounce, they would have scoffed at you. Well, Ron Paul wouldn't have, but yeah. many other people would have, and they would have been wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they, they certainly were wrong. Um, Americans, uh, what about the potential? What about silver? We haven't talked about silver, David. Um, is it the you know, same silver is actually the silver silver is is the real the winner in all this. Because Roosevelt's confiscation orders applied to silver as well. Silver was nationalized the same as other uh, as gold was. Um, you, if you were a miner, you had to sell it to the Treasury Department. 
Mm-hmm. And back in the 1930s, you were doing that for as little as 32 or 33 cents an ounce. Mm-hmm. They didn't find the need to uh, remove gold in quite the same way because if you if you look at the price of silver in 1873, it was $1.29. And then it went on this gradual descent into a mineral hell that destroyed the value of silver for probably two generations after it. Mm-hmm. But if you look at silver today at 32 bucks an ounce, what a great thing to buy. Uh, David, you know, you and I were talking a little earlier about the, uh, about the sentiment about gold, and I still think that most Americans are completely oblivious to it. They don't understand what's happening to their own money, yep. to, the, to the value of the dollar, and they don't understand why they need to own gold and silver to protect their wealth. Uh, that being the case, uh, since I think most Americans don't own any gold other than what they have, you know, maybe, maybe it's jewelry or a few coins here and there that they've, been given to at Christmas or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you know? Do you think the chances are still there that that we'll have another confiscation of gold, or might it just be uh, that gold rises to some infinite level in price, and those that have the gold will be extremely wealthy, and the government just decides to tax it away? Which which do you think is more likely? Well, I, I will simply say that at least if you look over the last three thousand years, he who has the gold makes the rules. Mm-hmm. But it was also true in the, in the French Revolution that he who had the gold lost their heads to the guillotine. Um, in some cases, that's certainly true. <laughs> hey, if I could comment. Uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, in an electronic age with the Internet, of course, most money and capital around the world is transferred electronically. Right. Um, but when things get bad in a country, we've seen this time and time again in, in history, uh, officialdom likes to impose capital controls. Mm-hmm. to prevent the flight of capital from, from a bad situation. So in the electronic realm, I, I fear that it's easier than ever uh, for governments worldwide, including our own, to impose capital controls on us. But when you come down to physical gold, of course, that's, uh, that becomes a bigger problem for, for, for the state. And, you know, gold and silver are truth-tellers. Mm-hmm. In other words, they're just static. They're just sitting there as lumps. And they're not going up or down. It's the dollar that's going up or down. Yeah, that's the point we made earlier. So so, uh, despite their best efforts, no amount of quantitative easing, uh, no amount of bailouts can can fool uh, the gold and silver markets forever. Of course, they try to dump. They try to to, to manipulate things. Of course, that's that's a different subject. But at the end of the day, the truth shines through, and and that's why uh, governments, you know, central banks hate gold. They hate silver. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it exposes the you know uh, the fiat currencies for what they are. Yeah, of course, if gold is made illegal to own again, uh, then it's uh, it's also difficult to take your physical gold and try to trade it uh, for something that you need uh, for life-sustaining groceries. Well, or you make the assumption that the gold would be readily recognizable, and secondly, that the gold would be something other than coin, which is to say bullion. I'm mm-hmm. absolutely convinced that based on the past precedent that they're not going to be taking gold coins away from people who have, have bought them in the past because the coins have a demonstrable record of appreciating substantially over the bullion value. And um, you're, you're talking very substantial collections where people would actually be having their property confiscated without any kind of due process. And I think that was the thinking back in the 30s as to why they allowed rare and unusual coin 
to do that. Roosevelt um, was a stamp collector, we all know, but if you go up to the Presidential Museum at Hyde Park, you'll see that he did collect some gold coins and some gold medals, which, which are still there. So it seems to me that um, if there is confiscation at some point in the future, it's most likely going to be uh, just the, the raw bullion product, but not legal tender coinage. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff, any any ideas about that? Well, I, you know, I think you're absolutely right, but it's it's going to be hard. I would say this that at some point, if they institute capital controls, those will also apply to physical movements of people, and presumably if the physical movements of their physical possessions. So, um, you know, gold is is a wonderful hedge, and but uh, you, you know, it's no guarantee of one security in the future because you can never um, deny sort of the avarice of governments. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, David, I think you were talking, though, about uh, probably about numismatic coins, perhaps? Absolutely. Legal, <clears throat> legal tender coins are numismatic coins. I'm sorry? Legal tender coins are numismatic coins. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I think you'll find that if you look at the even the silver one-ounce eagles or the fractional gold coins, uh, they all have numismatic value now, mm-hmm. and some more than others, because the mints, mint marks and the mintages on some of them are actually fairly low. Mm-hmm. And I'll just use this as a plug for my new book. I've got charts and tables in there telling you which ones are the lowest in terms of mintages that are available. Yeah, I want to get a copy of that book, and then we can talk about it uh, sometime later. But I think, uh, Jeff, Jeff, uh, both of you, uh, David and Jeff, we only got about a minute or so left on this segment, but uh, this whole thing about due process, I mean, is it something that our government really takes seriously yet, though? Because, I mean, now we can be be alleged as terrorists, and I might be a terrorist for owning gold one day. Uh, Do we have to have due process if we're terrorists, for goodness sakes? I mean... Does due process mean anything? We don't. We're not allowed a lawyer if we get if we get hauled in. We're not allowed. Uh, we can be detained forever if we get hauled into uh, as as accused of being a terrorist. And if I own a lot of gold, uh, might I might not be a terrorist? Uh, well, I mean, even... I'll simply say that if in order to prove that they'd have to know about a lot of things, and in order to do that, they're not going to be able to put a GPS on you and track you to find out where the gold is. Jeff. Well, like with a lot of things, I mean, even if you're not a terrorist, civil asset forfeiture has existed in this country before uh, 9-11. So uh, you bring up valid concerns, in my view. Valid concerns. Well, I, I, you know, we maybe we're accused of being alarmist sometimes on this show. Uh, maybe that's why we're gold bugs. Uh, maybe that's why we're a little bit crazy. Uh, people look at us that way. Uh, but all I know is us crazy folks that we're buying gold, uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, have done very, very well. And gold has risen very dramatically, not, not only against the dollar. Gold has risen against other, other metals and things which tell me that the world is becoming increasingly, uh, worried about the financial system. And I think that, that really plays into, uh, into the gold industry and, and people that are producing the miners that I cover so much in this, uh, in this, uh, in this show and in my newsletter. I want to thank you, David, uh, for coming on and talking to us. I do want to have you back again sometime to talk about your book. Thanks so much. Uh, and I want to get a copy of that. Jeff, thanks again uh, for coming in and adding uh, some value and some ideas here. Also, uh, we didn't talk uh, too much about a lot of other things that your boss is doing these days, but hopefully we'll have you on again sometime in the near future. 
thanks uh, both of you. Uh, folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with a wrap-up on today's show. Don't go away. Uh, Jeff? Yeah. Are you still there? Yeah. Uh, would you want to stay on for a few more minutes? I'm happy to. Can you? Okay. Yep. All right. I'll say goodbye. Thank okay, you so David, much. Thank you. I'll Take be care. in touch, and I'm going to get your book, and then we'll talk. Thanks so much. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Um, so, Jeff, I had him. Uh, I wasn't sure if you were going to be there or not, and that we were getting close to the time, so I would had him, and there were some other things to talk to him about, sure, so I had him, had him stay on and uh, just thought we could work you in with him. But if you're here um, for a couple of more minutes. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American bonanza.com for more exciting information don't miss this great opportunity American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at w www.rypatchgold.com Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters you're listening
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I've got Jeff Dice staying with me here for the last few minutes of today's show. Uh, Jeff, you were, uh, you were on there with uh, Mr. Gans, uh, David Gans, and he had some, uh, definitely as an expert in the area of coinage and uh, the law and so forth. Um, and I think you made some very good points. You know, one of, uh, one way that I have, uh, one convenient way of buying gold is through uh, James Turk's gold money. Uh, but that certainly also is a way that uh, government could keep track of you. I think is, was the message uh, if you're buying something electronically as opposed to actually owning the stuff, right? Well, sure, that's a concern. I mean, you know, fortunately we haven't come to anything like that. But when you know, when one starts talking about the possibility of a severe economic collapse and downturn, uh, if you look at history, governments haven't always uh, just let people. Um, Keep their precious metals or move their precious metals, um, and you know. So there's certainly reason to be distrustful of government during crises and and, uh, and civil liberty crackdowns, etc. Uh, so uh, you know. Yeah, let's hope, David let's hope talked about the you know the issue of due us. process, and I think that was something that was sort of held in high esteem at one time. Uh, although, of course, when governments come under pressure, they they're quick many times to throw out um, the law. And you know, just just um, do what they feel like doing to try to protect their own interests and so forth. Uh, what do you think about this notion of, of due process and, and worrying about property rights? I mean, it seems to me, in the 1930s, of course, uh, I mean, many of us that are have talked on this show, Robert Prechter, Ian Gordon, a host of people, believe this time around we're facing something much more serious than we faced in the 1930s. Because in the 1930s, the U.S was still a net exporter, it was still a net saver, the people saved their money, we're an agrarian economy, we had a lot of things, we weren't committed around the world like we are now with our military. Um, When push comes to shove, I think it's what you're saying, is don't depend on government to follow the law. Well, sure, history always shows us that in times of unrest or economic collapse, uh, governments usually move in and uh, Use heavy-handed measures, curtail civil liberties, etc. The difference, the main difference, of course, between now and the 1930s is just the size and scope of government. It's so much easier uh, for government to snoop on us or spy on us or come visit us now. In the 1930s, this was still a pretty far-flung nation, and Washington mm-hmm. was relatively small. And uh, you know, if you lived some in some place like Wyoming, um, other than you know maybe the annual visit from uh, some someone with the federal land office or something, you you, you probably didn't have to worry much about the federal government. But mm-hmm. today, there are all kinds of ways from, from uh, you know, RFID and monitoring your cell phone, et cetera, um, it, you know, infrared technology, the, you know, satellite technology, et cetera. Now, there's no reason, and, and, and I'm not uh, saying that the government does this to the average Joe. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that the, average, the government has the ability to do so. Sure. And, and which means that uh, I certainly believe, Congressman Paul certainly believes, we have to guard our civil liberties more zealously than ever today. Yeah, yeah well, this whole thing of, uh, you know, of who uh, is a terrorist and, um, you know, who might be accused of being 
uh, danger to our society is, is really left to be defined by the executive branch, is it not? Well, certainly by the British definition, uh, the revolutionary soldiers in America were, the anti-colonialists were, were terrorists. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the beginning of, of the revolutionary period, they didn't have standing armies fighting in conventional ways. They, they went around and did sort of uh, small anonymous acts of, of, of arson or vengeance against uh, British troops uh, or British property. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they were badly outgunned and outmanned, and they used guerrilla methods. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, the, ter- the definition of terrorist is a flexible one, as we've seen. Right, and that's what that's what people don't understand when they don't really uh, when there's been very little noise made about this recent uh, uh, Patriot Act uh, uh, newest version of it, which I think is downright frightening. And I know your boss in a in a recent um, debate uh, offered that opinion as well. Jeff, we are out of time, unfortunately. Um, we're lots and lots of stuff to talk about along these lines. I'm, I had several more questions, but I have to wait until another another time. I hope you'll come back with me again, uh, folks. Uh, don't. This is it for this week. I want to thank each of you for listening. I want to thank our sponsors. Uh, next week we have uh, Lewis Lehrman joining us, uh, and I think we're also going to have Robert Unger and um, and Robert Muchnik come back on to the show as well. Uh, to pick up where they left off on uh, on the state of Israel uh, and uh, how Ron Paul might actually be good for Israel, uh, good for those Israelis at least, or those Jews that live in Israel who want to see the the old-fashioned view of Israel maintained and an Israel that is... Uh, that has its own autonomy and uh, is its own nation and also returns to honest monetary standards. Well, that's all the time we have. I want to thank Tacey Trump, uh, my executive producer, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.